Hi. Hi. Hello. How are you? Hi, Janet. Hi, Carrie. Episode 20, big Welcome time. Welcome to 20. Mild. It seems, I mean, in one way, it seems longer, but in another <laughs> way, it's like 20. I mean, it just feels... Have I feels done like 20 a, of anything before? I know. I mean, it feels like a good solid yeah, number that feels of like things. A, yeah. I wouldn't... I would be sad if I lost $20. Mm-hmm. 20 is a big number. Yeah, it is. And we've done... We've done pretty well, pretty consistent. I think I think we still have a lot of ground to cover, and I definitely, in this upcoming new year, I want to have some more guests and do some more stuff like that, which I think will be fun, too, to have some. Yeah. I don't know everything about you. I don't know everything about you, and I was thinking recently about talking about stuff on the podcast and what we haven't really covered yet. And I started thinking about kind of our origin story of when, how, and when we started using substances or smoking or whatever, like what age and what the circumstances were, what was, you know, if, if you can remember, like, it's hard for me to remember anything, but what I was feeling at the time and just like the, the events or whatever of of that time and what the first substances were and who we did them with and all of, and who was the instigator like who how did you get it how did what was it and and all of that stuff do you remember that information I do and I will say that this story is gonna make me seem weird like <laughs> I'm gonna <laughs> come flash. out looking weird in this story okay here's the Here's the first bullet point is I was a fake drug dealer long before I was a real drug dealer. Oh, really? Were you selling some parsley? I was selling fake acid. I was selling fake acid. I was selling fake uh, MDA. I was selling... I sold to my friends, to... The people on the street, I sold fake drugs long before I ever even took real drugs. How did you know what they were? Like, how did you know how to even make a fake acid? Well, I knew it was on paper. So I just, like, cut up pieces of paper, basically. And I knew, uh, I knew, I mean, I had gel caps were something you could buy. And so I'd just buy them and then put stuff that I thought looked like people would think it was drugs in it mm-hmm. and sold fake drugs. I can't imagine you had much repeat business. You would be surprised. <laughs> you would be surprised. It was just psychosomatic. People thought they were high on acid and they weren't. Yeah, and nobody wants to say, like, I don't know what it feels like to be high. So, <laughs> I, oh I mean, we're talking, I was 14, so none of us right. knew, right? It, I mean... None of us had any idea what we were talking about. There was a, let's see, I probably was in 14th. I was probably 14, so whatever grade that is, 8th or 9th or some mm-hmm. somewhere around then. Yeah. And Adam Ant was a big. Mm. So I, I like to dress up like Adam Ant. And there was a dance club called Scoochies, and I sold fake MDA outside of Scoochies. Mm. And people would come back. I mean, maybe they were selling it to someone else, too, right? Like, maybe that's... Right. How much was it? 
Do you remember the prices? <laughs> no, I don't remember. I mean, not much. I mean, I remember when I was a late teenager, uh, early 20s, when I would take MDA, it felt expensive at that time for me. I can't remember if it was like $15 a hit or $20 yeah, a hit like or something. Yeah, I feel like somewhere around $20, yeah. It felt expensive at that time. Now, keep in mind, a pack of cigarettes was still like a dollar or dollar fifty or something, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I would always be bummed when I would take MDA because I would always barf it back up. And I'm like, oh, my God, I just barfed up $15 worth of my MDA. And so I'd always try to barf in a controlled environment so I could just pick it out of the sink and eat it again. Yes, right. I mean, I, I have a story of eating a bunch of mushrooms, dried mushrooms, and just, like, trying to chew them down raw. Mm. Or, you know, dried. And they're just, like, suck all the moisture out of your mouth. So that's really hard <laughs> <Yeah>. to do. <laughs> And I threw them, I kept them in for who knows how long, but not very long, and threw them all back up, sort, sifted them through my hands, <laughs> yeah. and ate them again. <laughs> I mean, I'm a, I'm a, this is not going to make me look like a cool person. I'm just going to look like a weirdo. So I have, I was fascinated with drugs by fifth grade maybe fascinated i would go to the public library and i would check out any biography about like my kid is a drug addict and this is what it was like there was a um robbie benson story that was called (laughs) a robbie benson movie called something about richie or something like that yeah and i watched that movie i read that book out of the library I feel like it was like an after-school special or like made-for-TV I mean, made for TV very movie. super dramatic. Like, I feel like it was like a scared straight tactic, right? Like, they were trying to make us not do drugs. Like, everyone knows at this point that Go Ask Alice, that fake diary was like total propaganda bullshit of like trying to scare kids out of using drugs. But that stuff doesn't work for me, right? That just made it seem more interesting to me. Mm-hmm. So Robbie Benson was all spun out on reds. I still don't really know what reds are. Maybe some kind of speed. I don't know. Black beauties. Don't really know what those are. It's like a little bit before my time. But mm-hmm. I was, you know, in the back of magazines, they would have caffeine pills and all the all the fake stimulant shit that you could order and i was just like i would just pour over that stuff i don't know why <laughs> i don't know why i studied it though i knew all about it before i had was you know 3 years from taking any drug i was fascinated with I couldn't Remember, wait. like, Quincy, have we talked about this before? Like, there'd be an episode of Quincy about a crazy person on, like, weed, and the, but, they, but they would act like they were on PCP yeah. or yeah, something. That's, that's yeah, that's where I learned, right? Kojak is where I learned that when someone is withdrawing from heroin, you feed them Hershey bars and orange juice. Oh. I, I learned, that's what I learned. Every time I've, you know, purposefully tried to withdraw from opiates, I buy Hershey bars and orange juice because that's what you do. It was just like, it was a legend. It was a, it was just legend and folklore before I ever took any drugs. So I was selling fake drugs. I had lies about drugs I did. I had, I mean, I'm t- like seventh grade probably. I had a whole group of people that believed that I was strung out on drugs 
And what about your siblings? Were they ever interested or involved in that stuff? Or did you know what they were doing socially? I don't think my brother, I mean, I think my brother smoked weed here and there. He drank here and there. My sister drank quite a bit. My sister went to college and did what all new college students do, which is like binge drink. She did that quite a bit. She ended up getting a job as a bartender and she was a bartender for a number of years. And, you know, I think all bartenders do a fair amount of cocaine, right? Like there's just cocaine in taverns and bars. And so you end up doing that. And anyone who drinks a lot, lots of times is going to end up doing cocaine because you got to do something. You got to stay awake to keep drinking, right? So back then it was still cocaine. It was still real, real. I don't think anything's real anymore. No. I literally don't think anything is, nothing is from a plant anymore. Everything is from laboratories. So when, do you know when you started? I mean, do you know when you technically started using or smoking or smoking pot or drinking or like? I'm going to say somewhere seventh grade, maybe I had like a hookup where maybe like my friend's brother grew weed or someone grew weed and we would end up with these bags of just garbage shake, right? Seeds, Seeds and stems. And we would just smoke that out of tall bongs for days at a time right like and I mean I probably did weed and acid before I really even drank Mm. like that was easier to get actually than alcohol for some reason drugs are easier probably still to this day drugs are easier to get than alcohol yeah when you're a little little person how old do you have to be to buy to go into a weed store. Do you have to be 18 or do you have to be 21? Probably 18. Probably. I actually don't know. I've never been in I a weed store. I don't know either. Did your parents smoke cigarettes? My dad my dad smoked two packs of Winston's a day until one New Year's where he quit and never smoked again. And he was one of those guys who like instantly hated cigarettes. Mm. So... He could smell it from a block away if you came home smelling like, or at least that's what he said sometimes. And my mom was a secret smoker who would go over to her friend's house and smoke those long cigarettes. It looks like they're smoking like a, like a drinking straw. Like yeah. just a, yeah, long, like a long pencil. Yeah. <laughs> just white and weird. Like 120s, yeah, or some yeah. shit. Like, why does it need to be that long? Like, you could just... Have yeah. another have another one if you want another. And she would. She would light one off the other. Just the long pencil cigarettes, one after the other. It's so weird to me because I I grew up with a mom who I lived with who smoked cigarettes, smoked pot, and drank. And I, you know, when we were little, we hated cigarettes. We would steal her cigarettes and and throw them in the garbage or we'd burn them in the fireplace or whatever. And then for some reason, when I was in fifth grade I just started taking her cigarettes and started smoking them I don't I don't even know why and I also started stealing weed from her I could roll I mean I could roll a perfect joint I would take cigarettes and I would roll a joint and I would I had a friend that we that was my neighbor and we would meet at the bus stop in the morning and smoke we'd smoke cigarettes and smoke weed get on the bus and go to Wait, fifth grade how your fifth grade yeah oh, well I mean I remember smoking dri- like sticks like I wanted to smoke something so we I would smoke 
like sticks outside, right? Like, oh, this stick seems kind of hollow. I bet I could smoke it, right? I'm just inhaling burning wood. And then one day our fifth grade teacher took us out in the hall after we got to school in the morning. And he said, are you guys, you guys really reek? Like, are you smoking? And we were like, no. And we just kept showing up smelling like smoke. And then we eventually, I eventually got in trouble. When I was in fifth and when I was in fifth and sixth grade was when I started really getting in trouble in school and getting like in school detention, either for like skipping school or for coming to school stoned or something like that. And then my mom sent me to go live with my dad and my stepmom. So we lived in Eastern Washington at that point, And my dad I mean, and it's his. so ridiculous to me that the kid would get in trouble. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I'm coming to class reeking like smoke and you think it's me. First of all, my mom smokes in the car with the windows closed. So everyone smells like smoke, dude. Yeah. But also, like, today, if there was a kid that's like, hey, I think this fifth grader is smoking weed, we need to talk to his or her parents. Right. Not to her. Like, what's she going to, like, obviously this isn't something she's putting a lot of critical thought into. Yeah, she's not a, she's not buying cigarettes herself at the store. And but keep in mind this was the late 70s, right? So shit shit was just different back then. I mean, when I was in kindergarten, my mom would send me to the store to buy cigarettes for. Her. But before that, when I was in kindergarten, like kindergarten first grade when we lived on Queen Anne before we moved to Eastern Washington, we on our coffee table, we had a a tray, a weed tray, and it often had like an album, you know, like a double album opened up and it had a credit card or something in it. And whoever was sitting at the couch, who was sitting at the coffee table, was supposed to separate the seeds out of the weed so they don't pop when you smoke them. And so I knew all about it. I knew all about weed. And it never occurred to me that I wasn't supposed to be doing it. I mean, I kind of inherently knew I wasn't supposed to be doing it, but I just thought, I'm just going to accelerate my adulthood and just start doing it now because this is what adults do, and this is what my mom does. So also, doesn't it seem like the weed back then was just kind of garbage? Like, it wasn't, like, nothing like it is now. I don't remember being high. No, I don't really yeah. remember being high. Yeah. I don't right. know if I was smoking it correctly, but I... It's like I was doing it to be an adult. I wasn't doing it necessarily to get high. I just wanted to be grown up. Yeah. And then, but it was just that one friend that would do it with me. I mean, I didn't have a group of people where we would go behind the library and smoke pot together or anything. At and what then, age did you have that? When did you get that? Because well, so I mean, eventually in, you get that. And right. So in sixth grade, I moved in with my dad and stepmom and my younger brother, my half-brother, in Bellevue. And I went to sixth grade in Bellevue, and then my brother, Craig, came to live with our dad also. So my dad had to buy a bigger house. And so then we moved to Renton. And then in Renton was where I really found, like, my stoner friends. And So wait, my... your mom sent you away because uh-huh. you were smoking. Yeah, I was just getting in a lot of trouble. I was skipping school. And I, was just, I wonder yeah. what happened in that time where Craig was still there. He wasn't in trouble. He just, we always wanted to live with our dad. Like that was, to us, that was going to be Disneyland. It was going to be, because, you know, you just romanticize the other parent. And I was very close to my stepmom. She she was really young. And I really loved my younger brother. I loved babies and little kids. And so I always wanted to be with my younger brother. And our life with our mom was 
you know, it was tumultuous. And I think, you know, deep in our hearts, we craved, you know, having that stable, safe family life. And it seemed like our dad had that, especially when he remarried and had a baby. Because we would come visit them and stay with them. And life was good with them. There was no episodes of whatever was happening at my mom's house. And so she finally... I mean, it didn't feel like a punishment to me. It felt like a success, you know, it felt like a victory, like a reward. And so then we moved to kind of unincorporated Renton, like right on the border between Renton, Bellevue and Issaquah. So and then I we moved into this neighborhood, but just, you know, on the other side of the neighborhood was a bunch of horse pastures and a pipeline and kind of sort of country sort of rural ish. What's a pipeline? What's a pipeline? It's just like a, it's just like a long kind of a trail that goes through a certain area because there's a big pipeline underneath it. But like you know, there's a gate at the end of it where the road is, and then so there was just like long chunks of pipe. We would ride our horses on those, and just it's the pipeline. So, and there was a lake and stuff, and um, so you know when I started to meet my neighbors and started to hang out with some of my neighbors that were my same age that had horses and stuff and we would hang out at the barn and some of them were a little older than me and they all smoked cigarettes and you know what I mean so then I just found my group of people that did all that same stuff and so we all drank and you know when we could when we could find someone to buy it for us or steal it from our parents basically but not from my parents my dad not from my dad and stepmom they didn't have booze around but but we you know on the weekends would drink beer and stuff and we we all smoked cigs and which we would just alternate stealing cigarettes from our parents, usually. And Mm -hmm. we smoked weed. Like, I would try to smoke weed every day if I could. Like, a lot of days, a lot of times I did smoke weed. I mean, back then we would buy a a half gram of weed, and it would last a week between the group of all of us, you know. It wasn't like it took that much. But And then when I was in high school, I just, you know, like, if there was a list of drugs— you know, just like all the drugs available in, to a person in high school, I just went down the list and yeah, checked them same. all off. Yeah, it was yeah. just like whatever yeah. was around, I did. Yeah. I did speed. Well, one of my best friend's mom was a Coke dealer, so I did a lot of Coke in high school. She would give me Coke for my birthday. And we what just, was she? The, she would steal it from her mom, or her mom would give it to her? Um, It was a, it was a male, and... I think I think she would just give it to him and give it to us. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it sounds terrible to say. It sounds like very irresponsible parenting. <laughs> it is. It is. It wasn't a mountain. Like she wouldn't give us mountains of of coke. like it matters <laughs> quantity. Right. Still, yeah. And I was thinking about that the other day. Just like, like wow, different freaking standards back then. Yeah, just really she different. A, yeah, she was like my, my mom. You know, just a ch- uh, person in the seventies. That was yeah. although this was the eighties. But and I did acid in high school. I did. MDA and ecstasy. And then when I started coming to Seattle, I started doing more ecstasy, I think. I don't think I did ecstasy when I was still no, in No, it, we, it wasn't ecstasy. Seattle. It was MDA. MDA, yeah. We didn't call it ecstasy. Right, right. We had MDA. And then I didn't do heroin until I was 21. And I remember someone telling me, my, my boyfriend that I met when I started coming to Seattle and going to shows was a bit older than me and he was in a band with some people that used heroin and he would always say to me like don't ever do that don't ever do that and I'm like I won't I will never do it I'll never do it and then my next boyfriend 
him and me and my best friend were out eating dinner one night, and they had both done it before, and they were talking about getting some. And I yeah, was just I think like, you shared that. With yeah, us. yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, it's just so funny to look back at my mindset at that time and just think like I had, I, I thought I had like this hard boundary, like oh, I'm never going to cross that boundary, and all it took was nothing. I mean, it yeah, literally right. took I nothing mean, for me to cross that boundary. It's that old like twelve step recovery saying right the things that you say you're ne- you will never do are the things that you are likely to do next mm-hmm. right you got them in mind like i'm never gonna do this well people who don't ever do that they don't talk about not doing it they just don't ever do it of right? course like, and later on in life talking to some of my friends that i was friends with in junior high and high school and after high school after i had you know gotten in recovery and was back in touch with everybody and told them my story. They were like, it's so wild that you became, you know, a heroin addict because you were not the type of person, like you weren't, I wasn't the the drug fanatic in our friend group. I wasn't the person that would stay up all night doing coke. I would just be like, oh, it's gone. Okay, I'm going to bed or just keep drinking or whatever. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I wasn't the fiend in our group. So it was weird to them that I was the one that ended up being becoming <laughs> yeah it's just like well I had, didn't find my favorite drug yet or whatever or the one that fixed f- that I got the comfort from that I really needed yeah I mean my story's pretty similar like did all the I don't know why I call them like baby drugs like they're just like baby drugs like MDA and acid and mushrooms and those were like every weekend smoking weed as often as possible I mean I I drank quite a bit. I drank a lot when I was a young person. I mean, I drank pretty much. I drank as a young person until I found opiates. Yeah. Right. But so it, did I. Yeah. Yeah. If I don't have, if, if it's not opiates, it's alcohol for me and, and like white powders as like the, as like the garnish spice right like (laughs) yeah yeah, the garnish right like that's how you spice it up with white powders but the base is alcohol and opiates did you find when you came to aa or when you got sober did you have trouble identifying as an alcoholic since you came in i mean we both came into aa off of opiates aa stands for alcoholics anonymous and what was your experience like identifying as an alcoholic after having been it's it's easy to explain for me is is drugs are actually my life is much more manageable on drugs than it is on just alcohol right like you can't go to work when you drink so much that you piss yourself right like you can actually have a functional life very easily i'm not much of a maintenance drinker right i can't just drink Bud Light for an entire week, right? I drink to to the point where I black out. Mm-hmm. So that is like that's just not a like I couldn't be a mother at in any sense of the word. But I know that if I were on an island where all you could had access to was alcohol, is I would I would drink it till I blacked out. Yeah. That's how I would I would be if there was on our island and all, the only thing I had to do was coffee or c- cigarettes or freaking most recently blow pops. 
Right? If all if all I can eat is blow pops, I'm eating nine in a row. And you've witnessed it happening, right? Like I can I do everything that I that is spree behavior. I do it till I'm fucking sick. So I I don't have any I don't have any problem identifying as an alcoholic. Because mm-hmm. I know what my experience is. And drugs actually make me more easily able to have a manageable life if I'm using drugs and not alcohol so but I know how I am with everything right I I mean when I went to treatment I hadn't smoked in 20 years I immediately started smoking when I couldn't do sugar caffeine drugs or alcohol but you can smoke well I'm doing that now Mm -hmm. I don't even like it but I'm doing it so I just never had a question I've never had a question about it well, I remember being about 14 years old and getting, because I was kind of a street kid, so I was always a little bit sick all the time, but I got a real bad case of bronchitis, like the kind where it sounds like you're coughing up nails, and it really hurt. And I went to the doctor, and he gave me coating cough syrup, mm. which to this day is my favorite drug because yeah, a good one. it is alcohol and coating combined, and it tastes like cherries and it's delicious and I got that I got that prescription and I had real bad bronchitis and it helped the bronchitis but I loved how it made me feel instantly I loved it I was like this I remember thinking like this is how I'm supposed to feel this is what I this is what regular people feel naturally and this is missing in me and when I have it, I feel normal and I'm not no longer, I mean, I just felt all the, all the things that we hear people talk about, like, you know, almost a spiritual experience. Like I felt correct. Yeah. I felt right for the first time in my life. I felt like, oh, my skin fits. Well, and I had a, I had this idea of heroin probably from TV where People that do heroin live in a doorway and they are bums and they're hobos and they're, I didn't really know, but I knew that it was just like something evil and terrible and it had to just be so wild. Yeah. So then the first time I did it, I was like, oh, this is the codeine cough syrup. Yeah, right, right. This is the one well, that I, I really I thought it. I thought it was like, like hallucinogenic. Like exactly. you would get out of control. Like, right, like PCP. you stars exactly. yeah. and you might fight a cop and like <laughs> yeah. your life would be, <laughs> yeah. you're instantly like selling your body or whatever, right? Like I didn't, yeah. I didn't know that it was coding cough syrup, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I was like, oh, this is that. that. Like this thing, I mean, even though I had all these crazy ideas about what opiates and heroin would be like, Still couldn't wait to do them. Could not wait to find mm. them. Couldn't wait to somehow get a source of getting them. Couldn't wait. And then I got it and was like, oh, I was wrong about what I thought this was. And, I, you know, I would never be. I'm not like a. I think I can say safely that if that deserted island had all the hallucinogens you could take right like easy access the only thing you can do is take acid but you can take as much as you want i don't know if everybody has these fantasy deserted islands in their head but i have them right i don't know that i would abuse acid right i don't really like feeling out of control or like that i can't trust what i'm thinking or can't trust what i'm seeing i don't really like that 
feeling of being less in control. And that, you know, that is not, that was not my experience of opiates. It just felt like, oh, this is how I've, how I'm supposed to be. This is like, this is how life should feel. Feels comfortable and soft. It feels and so nice, comfortable yeah. and like I'm not afraid and everything makes sense. Don't you feel like hallucinogens? First of all, I feel like they're it's a young person's game. I feel like I feel like you only need to take hallucinogens a few a handful of times in your whole life. Yeah. It's like once you have those kind of breakthroughs and have that kind of experience, I don't think you I don't think it's ever gonna be so like illuminating or just so expansive. I've never heard of a middle-aged person taking hallucinogens and them not being like a weird person, right? Like, oh, that person's a little bit bonked, Mm. right? They're a little bit cracked off, right? Like, I mean, I can understand if you got to your 40s or 50s and had never taken it and you were interested in doing an ayahuasca or something right. like that. Like, I right, could understand you, doing yeah, that. Yeah, but you've done but a I don't lifetime think, of hallucinogens. That's weird. Yeah, then you are you may have a you may have gone off the edge yeah. a little bit. You're, yeah. Yeah, you have some brain injuries. <laughs> yeah, for, yeah, for sure. And also, I just feel like I got to a certain age where... And maybe, you know, when I got to that certain age, I'd been sober for a period of time. But just like, I don't want to think about the stuff that you think about when you're having that experience, you know, Mm -hmm. before, like when you're young and you don't have responsibilities and you're not a parent and you're not contemplating your mortality and you're not having an existential crisis. Like, that's when when your mind is equipped to have that expansive, wild experience. I feel like now if I were to take a hallucinogen, I would just be like thinking about my own death or something yeah, right, exactly. it wouldn't no. be very enjoyable mm-hmm. and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be expanding my consciousness it probably would be terrifying yeah right very right. scary yeah yeah and then it's you know as soon as i'm as soon as i understand what opiates are and i'm thinking like everybody has made too big a deal of this drug like this right. drug is this is this shit right this is the easiest Yeah, that's all I did. I mean, then I did that. I would drink, do opiates, and do white powders as vacations and fun spice, you know, adding spice until probably the, you know, my second time being strung out as an older adult lady. Um, (laughs) It's a very different experience that time. But but as a young person. You mean this most recent time? Yeah, 10, 10 years 10, ago. Yeah. Yeah, 10, 12 years ago. Yeah. yeah. What was the difference? Oh, God, man. <laughs> I mean, I kind of describe it as like an infrastructure difference, right? I, mm-hmm. I, I mean, you're so ba- you have so much resilience as a young person, right? right. Like, even just yeah. think of like your skin tone, right? Like, you're just bouncy. You're flexible. Hydrated. High, yeah. Like you could fall down a flight of stairs and probably not get too hurt, right? Like you're like, oh, I twisted my elbow or whatever, but I'm fine. And now, th- you know, think about falling down the stairs as a 50-year-old or at yeah. the time like 40-year-old. I just didn't have the like resilience. And so it was very like it was very physical very quickly. Mm. And so like, I, you know – 
I'm just one of those people who like, I have a low key headache most of the time, right? I have 10% of a headache all of the time. And sometimes it gets to be 60 or 70 or 90, right? But I always have a little bit of a headache. Well, I, I mean, it was always like 65% headache. Mm. Have a bad headache. I like have heartburn that'll keep you up at night. I have kidney, like my kidneys go funky. My I get bladder stones. I have MRSA, right? Like the infrastructure just rejects it, right? Like it's just like not doing well. Mm-hmm. And I I had money. I had more money as a as an older adult person. But it's like I don't know. I mean, I feel like it's answered prayer at this point. And, and really, like, I think this is what people mean in 12-step programs when they say, like, the drug stopped working. Mm. I couldn't get enough in mm-hmm. to drown out how bad I felt physically, spiritually, mentally. Right? I yeah. couldn't get enough in. So it was just like, it doesn't matter how much money I have. I can't actually get it into my body in the way that is going to make it feel better. Mm-hmm. And so it was just always like struggling with that consumption to blot out the pain, but nothing really works. My, you know, the circumstances of my life were so emotionally painful at that time because I just lost my husband. My kids yeah. were displaced, right? Like I, I, it was a fire sale and I couldn't get enough in to make it not hurt. So it was very much different the second time. I don't recommend anybody trying it out again after no. many years of, I don't know anybody's story who, I mean, right, the book says that alcoholism is a progressive illness that it gets worse, never better. And I've just heard so many stories of people trying it again, right? Like, oh, forgetting that they have alcoholism or thinking it's going to be different this time or whatever and having it be anything but worse, right? Yeah. That is my exact experience. It was very much worse. I didn't get the relief I was looking for. And it was just a catastrophe. I feel like I didn't... Let me think about this. I had some time, like, while I was pregnant, and then after Mason was born, I had some time there. And then, let me think. Oh, and then I went to treatment in 95 for a year. And then I started, and then I used again after that for the last chunk of time before I got sober this last time. And I remember when I was using, I would see, so Mason was with his dad. He was, you know, like four. And... I would see people, you know, when I was out during the day committing crimes to buy drugs, I would see people with kids. I would see moms with sons at the park or at the mall or at Home Depot or something. And I would, you know, I was in the inactive addiction and altered, you know, by chemicals. And I would still have these thoughts of like, I can't do enough drugs. Yeah, right. You can't. To kill the pain of knowing that my I'm not with my kid. No. Like it was so painful to me to not be with him. And then but also but that same pain also made me hopeless. It made me give mm-hmm. up. There's no way right. back. There's no, no way. way back yeah. to him. There's you just can't no see way. way. No. Mm-mm. I mean so it was like motivating and then it was also very not motivating at the same time. So it, 
just an aside at work today, we went and looked at this list of, you know, we're asking our members, like, what is the what is the biggest challenge that you face right now? Because that's always what I want to ask everybody is like, what's the hardest thing for you right now? Mm -hmm. And then we also ask, like, what is what has been most helpful? And so at my team, we were just going through that those answers that we've gotten back from our um, in-app surveys and. And gosh, my heart just broke about how many times people mentioned my kids. Mm -hmm. The biggest challenge is getting my kids back, getting my kids back, getting my kids back. And I remember like, you know, that kind of pain is you can't get high enough to get Mm -mm. out of that kind of pain. You can't. And and every time you see a kid or are reminded of your kid, which is constantly because it feels like your arms are missing, Mm -hmm. it's like heartbreak absolute heartbreak so then like I think a lot of non-SUD non-affected people you know normal brains let's call them for lack of a better word but I don't like to say that but would look at someone like me or you or anyone who is in active use and that's the reason they're separated from their kid and say, well, why don't you just stop? You know, why don't you just stop? You're a parent or you should, you know, think of your kids first. Right. It, when, again, I'll say like in actuality, thinking of your kids causes more pain and co- like the initial the initial response is to try to do more substances to try to squash that pain. And then the deeper and deeper you get into that, you're doing crimes, you're living in sketchy places, you're farther and farther away, no one will talk to you, your family won't accept your calls or whatever, like you don't have access to your kid, and then it just becomes hopeless. The pain is so acute and so severe that it's you start to disbelieve your kid's going to be better off without you. And people, you know, a lot of people said that about Kurt at the end of his life, that he, I think in his letter, he said... Well, I can't remember, but something about, like, he. I believe that he felt that, that he thought that his child would be better off without him because he was, didn't see, didn't see a way out. And it does, I mean, for all intents and purposes, it really does feel like that, right? Like, it does feel like that, that there isn't, there isn't a way out. And it, and like, I, or or like, I will do it, but it's not going to be today. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm that is a good idea that. what you're a, recommending, right. but it can't I can't do it now. Right. It's just like every intervention we watch, right? They say like I will go to treatment, but not today. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like Yeah. I think that's I got to go tomorrow. Great, yeah. But I have to go tomorrow. And then it that just piles up, piles up, piles up. Mhm. At work we did a social media post about parenting and recovery. And it was so interesting to see everyone's statements. And I got Mason to write a little thing. And did you see it? Did I, I show did. it to you? Mm-hmm. And it was just so heartfelt and so profound. And he 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 just said he said something like, you know, I am honestly like sincerely really grateful that my mom has been sober. You know, thank you or something like that. And I'm just like, oh my gosh. I mean, it's really like. It's a weird thing for him, though, because he doesn't remember me not being sober, so right. he doesn't have anything to compare it to exactly. Yeah, yeah but my I kids think... definitely do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My kids definitely do. And I'm kind of double-minded about it because there's a there's a part of me 
that believes like it is a miracle. Mm-hmm. It's a miracle that because yeah. I believe like people don't get to be where I am and come from where I come from. Right. Like that is a trip of a thousand lifetimes. Mm-hmm. I believe that. But I also believe that recovery is possible. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and it doesn't take a miracle. Right. It takes like luck and it takes a community and it takes people helping and that's what it I is. don't yeah. think you can do it by yourself though it's rare very it's rare like you just choose not to like that I whose feel brain like works that way I always felt like I was just kind of plucked like just the universe just divinely ordered I was going to be plucked out of this situation and given this opportunity and it wasn't ever easy and it wasn't ever very fun and it wasn't ever Anything that I could delegate to anyone else, I could not circumvent walking through the hard part of that. And no, and I mean, I it's just as weird because I also am not really a big believer in a bottom, right? Like, I don't no. really yeah. have an experience of a bottom. And so my sober day is 12-28-2011. And I didn't pick that date, and you know that, and yours is the same, right? We didn't pick that date because no. if I would have, I would have picked one one. Not twelve twenty eight, right? <laughs> yeah. Like I would have picked yeah. Christmas or New Year's Day or something. My like birthday, rational. right? Yeah, right. Yeah. Easier to count. I wouldn't have picked in between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. So I know I didn't pick that date, and I used to think, well, that's just when, you know, things got bad enough, and I asked for help. But I had been asking for help for a long time before then, and I had had like the consequences of my life on. December 27th were just as bad as they were on December 28th, right? Mm-hmm. Like the same things were happening where I had, you know, brokenhearted about my kids, you know, all Your the husband. things were the same. Yeah. My yeah. husband, my mm-hmm. physical health was in fucking tur- trashed. Like, dude, I was trashed. I never have felt worse in my physical body in my life. That's not, that wasn't enough on 1227, right? Like my last drink isn't on 1227. So all the same things were happening, but something about December 28th. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how to make it happen. I don't know how to give it to anyone else. I don't know, like, what combination of things do you have to have? It's If I could ask God one question, that would be the question. Mm-hmm. All the components that have to line up to get that willingness and yeah, to like, take that first it's like a little camel leap of faith. Through a needle's eye, right? Yeah. Like, how do you make that happen for anyone else? Because if I could, I would give that shit away, right? Yeah. I would give it away. I would figure out a way to give it to everybody. I would know how to crack the, you know, crack the probably most heartbreaking epidemic of our yeah human lifetime, right? Like. People, a lot of people say that to me about because my sober anniversary is twelve thirty one, which is weird because it's New Year's Eve and everyone's like, "Oh, what a great day to pick!" And I'm like, I, "If I would have picked a day, you know, like you just said, I wouldn't pick New Year's Eve. You pick New Year's Day. Like my last drink was twelve thirty, or my last drug was twelve thirty. It wasn't twelve thirty one, so right. it's not even 
Like, oh, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution, but I'll just start on New Year's Eve. I mean, right. of course. Yeah, that's like, just weird. Also, it makes also, it very hard to figure out what, how many years What year it is. I know. <laughs> it's the last day of the year. Also, if I was going to pick the day, I would have picked it like 10 fucking years earlier than that, honestly. Absolutely. I kept trying to pick my Absolutely. day. I tried 500 times to I pick mean, my day. I mean, if we celebrated the day you went back to AA, it would have been a very different birthday, right? Because I went back a lot earlier than that, than 2011, right? I was trying to go back into 2009 again right well yeah like i said the other night when we were talking about it i was like well i started trying in september so it's not like this was some big monumental special day that i had crossed off on my calendar as like oh this is the day i'm gonna start no i wouldn't so i don't know how it happened i don't know how it happened i don't know how it ever happened i used to when i was still using that last time i was Living in a house, kind of a, you know, trap house. And I had a boyfriend at the time and I would just, it was just terrible, terrible conditions. And I was literally would get on my knees and pray like I had never done before. Just like, God, please help me. I don't, I just don't know. Like, how do I, this isn't my life. I don't want this life. And it still was years after that before. Right. Right? But I can't help but thinking that I, I just had that, I had that longing you know that knowing in my heart of just like this isn't what I'm I'm not going to make it through this I can't do this I just don't want to do this forever and I had I had that awareness a bunch of different times throughout the times I was using but that didn't give me any power you know that didn't give me any power to make any to take any different probably everyone who's ended up dying of drug addiction or or like crime associated with drug addiction or sickness associated with drug addiction has that same thought yeah. This is not my life. I don't want to do just this. What's, yeah. This is just what's happening right now, but I'm going to pull out of it. Yeah. Right? Well, Everyone's going to do that. No idea. No idea how. Just like, no idea, how do I get d- from here yeah. to there? And the reality is I was 10 miles away from my entire life, from my kid, all my friends, my family. I was in the vicinity. I was so close to my old life or to a new life and and felt like I was in you know I mean it's like you're just South in Africa a, yeah you're just on a very different plane yeah right? you're exactly just not different like plane of existence for different sure plane. and I got you know I got sober before like oxys and stuff became super big I think they were just starting well I got sober the last day of 1998 so when was the big like when did dope sick that um tv show that we I watched mean, what yeah, year was that say, was it 96 no, I would say 2000. Mm. Yeah, I think I just missed it by the very tail end because I remember young people coming into AA after I first got sober and they were all oxy kids. Yeah, 2003. Yeah, I really mean, really young. Everyone we oxy. know that's like 32 30, to yeah. 28, all oxy kids. Yeah. Oxy tots. Oxy tots. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> But you know, I never, I just never got that into pills. I never was, I never was well, really. They weren't a good when you were out person. there. They weren't good. No, were I was good. right in between because quaaludes were over and oxy's oh, had yeah. happened I, yet. I did quaaludes one time in my life, maybe two times, but they were almost gone by the time I was a thirteen or fourteen. I remember it felt like I snorted it, didn't know what it was, snorted it, and it felt like someone had put a cigarette out in my nose. Oh. 
Yeah. Hurt real bad. And then what? You just felt... My mom always told me that it just felt like you were drunk. No, yeah. Instantly drunk. Like Without just having fun. to drink. Yeah. Yeah. Just that sounds real pretty tipsy. fun. Yeah, but real easy to overshoot the mark. Yeah, for sure. Yvonne's husband used to tell me stories about his... You know, he's a bit older, and so he did a lot, He enjoyed doing a quaalude, and him and his friends called him Disco Biscuits. And I'm like, that sounds about right. I think that's how my mom would talk about him, too. Yeah, and of, then Yeah, groovy. My mom and her friends, when I was young, when I was in kindergarten and first grade, we lived on, a, on Queen Anne in a duplex, and her and her friends always had a PDR on the coffee table because they had friends that with just like big coolers full of pills. Oh, mm-hmm. So they would take them out and then they would look them up. I had a PDR book. too. Physician's desk reference. It was yeah, like exactly. all, yeah. the, all yeah. the meds, what they looked like. I had like. one of those on my coffee table as a kid because my mom and her friends would, and all of their, her friends were all, they all had nicknames and they you know, sometimes we'd have a chopper parked in our living room or whatever. Like, it was pretty wild. But she was very young. You know, when I look back on it now, I think I always thought of her as an adult. But in reality, she was 22, you know, or something, right. or 24. Like, right. young person in the 70s. And that culture was, and she worked at a law firm. So I think she was, like, the original um, yuppie. Because mm-hmm. she was I'm, a hippie. I'm thinking, like, L.A. law. Lots of coke on L.A. law. <laughs> Big suits. Yeah, well, this was still the 70s, so it was before, even before that. And she was, you know, she was cool. She was a hipster and, you know, listening to Fleetwood Mac and with her shag haircut and her, you know, macrame fucking yeah, plant holders and shit. Groovy. Like, Yeah, she was, she was a 70s person, and I think that that's always been kind of how I've thought of her and her persona. She... I mean, her whole career, she worked at law firms, and and um, and she's still alive. She's retired. But growing up in the environment, in that environment, made me hate hippies with a passion. And I hated all of that music. I really hated Fleetwood Mac. I really hated all of the shit she listened to back then. She was really into, I don't know, just all the stuff you heard on the radio in the 70s. It took me a really long time to work through that, like, getting activated when I would hear. Oh, yeah. I still am that way a little bit with, I'm like that with the anything around like the yellow submarine era of the Beatles. Mm. Totally activated. Because why? Because your parents were into it? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, but, my mom but was. But that era, that era. Uh, yeah. My mom was really in love with Paul McCartney always. So I was always acutely aware of Paul and the Beatles and Wings and all that stuff. And... When I grew up, I think we talked about this before when we were talking about the Beatles, but when I grew up and started meeting people that didn't like the Beatles, I didn't know that was an option. Like, I didn't know (laughs) that that was on the ballot. Like, you could choose yes or no. It was just Mm -hmm. like you had to – it was just such a big part of her life and my life. And I think my brother was probably really into the Beatles too. Yeah. It's so interesting now to look back on that stuff. Even, like, she was really into Led Zeppelin and ELO and all that kind of stuff, Waylon and Willie, and I just couldn't – I yeah, couldn't. my mom used to put on. Um, my sister mentioned it over Christmas too that she heard the the. Oh God, it's so funny, the song "Convoy." Do you remember that song? Oh yeah, <laughs> my mom wore out that record. Wow, mm-hmm. who sang that? I song? don't even know, but we had the forty-five, mm-hmm. and she. It's not that good I mean, of a it, song. No, it's not that good a song. I was thinking. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day that 
my mom, I mean, there's very obvious signs that my mom struggled as a mom, as a mother. And one of them was that she would lock herself in the basement, which was like a daylight basement, but she could lock us out of it. And she would put on music and she would walk around in a circle. And I knew this because we could sneak around spy to on the her. back mm-hmm. and spy on her and watch her listening to the same song and walking around in a circle. And she would do it for a while, like a long time, probably because she was about to blow her top, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and so she would do that to cool out. And, and she also would have candy, like sweets, hidden somewhere like in her sock drawer she would have like a box of chocolates or something and we knew that she did this and we knew where her main hiding places were so we would whenever she we were alone which was a lot of the time right i she was we were often home by ourselves or functionally by ourselves because she was not locked in the basement walking around in the basement or, or honestly like playing video games we would go pilfer the whole house. Like I pilfered the whole house, all my dad, my dad's cufflink collection, everything. Right, I knew where everything in the house was. Mm-hmm. Pilfered all of it. So we would always find her candy stashes, and we would just raid that. I mean, we would take it all. And so I remember like thinking some days where she was probably like, "Oh, I, you know, those goddamn kids. I'm gonna." can't wait till they all go to bed and then I'm going to eat some candy and take a bath. And she would just like open her stash and just wrappers. It's gone. Just, it's all, it's gone. I'm sorry. I mom. mean, no wonder she walked in a circle, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Having more than two kids. I mean, I only had one kid, so I'm just talking out of my ass here, but from what I have seen, Two kids is a lot, but three is just too much because it throws yeah. out the balance right. of There's always the, two against of, one. There's mm-hmm. two that are getting along and there's one that's left out. Right. And there's more than the two parents. Like it's it's not equal footing anymore. Like three kids are way more than two kids. It's like exponentially more than just two. Yeah. And, and there's always one that's sitting in the middle seat in the back of the car. Which is the reason that's such a bad position to be in, at least this was true in our house, is that dad was always driving and you could only like fuck around in the back seat for so long before the arm would come back and start thrashing people in the back seat. And if you were in the middle, you were catching it. So that was the bad seat to sit in. Mm-hmm. And everyone kind of had a turn in the barrel on that one. You are the middle child. I'm the middle kid. So mm-hmm. am I. Mm-hmm. Wow. Older sister, younger brother. That's what. So that's what I was talking about today with my friend Erin. She she's a middle child, and she oh, yeah. and her We're sister all fucked up. Yeah, We're yeah. And her sister up. has three kids, and mm-hmm. she really is close to her sister's middle child. And so yeah, that's really interesting. But my friend Erin that I was talking to today only has two kids, and I'm like, well, that, don't don't have another one. Right. <laughs> she won't. But yeah. Right. But to keep that that dynamic of just two, I think is well. And the, the the older one gets your parents while they're like fresh and new, kind of right, and like you know this is their first baby, so they treat it very precious. And he's, you know, they they are they. I mean, my sister had my parents to herself for four years. Like she has a very different understanding. I mean, she had a very different infancy than my brother and I did. Mm-hmm. Right. Cause she had them for four years, her first, their first baby. And then 
you know, the baby is the baby. Like he can't do anything because he's the baby. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I mean, as far as my mom's concerned, my brother shits ice cream. You know, like he's he's the perfect one. And then, you know, middle. <laughs> middle and Janet. like sensitive artist, drug yep. addict. Trying know. to get attention. No one's paying attention. No one. Interesting. Well, maybe I'll start a new study on yeah, female let's keep track middle of, children. Let's keep track of how many of our friends in AA are middle children. <laughs> right. Yeah. We're ignored. We've been not given the attention that we need and deserve. Oh, I saw a meme the other day that said trauma. Let me think. Trauma isn't caused. It was talking about childhood trauma. Childhood trauma isn't caused by experiencing pain. It's caused by experiencing pain alone or something like that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the inference of like having a painful experience and then just not having any that's not the exact wording, but you know what yeah, I'm saying. Yeah, but I get it. I get it the It rang so true to me. Yeah, it rang so true to me because we can't avert pain. We're no, going to experience right, yeah. pain. We're going to experience loss and suffering and uncomfortable stuff and questions and doubt and fear and insecurity. But to have to weather that alone, I think, is is um, just hits the nail on the head. It really just kind of distilled it down into like, oh, that's exactly that's exactly. Yeah. how it occurs to me of like because no matter what kind of family you have no matter how much money you have no how much how, how loving or attentive a parent wants to be if you f- don't feel like they are a safe place to bring stuff to or to participate in your emotions in a safe way it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what any of the surroundings or any of the attempts at creating a a whole healed or self-healing person or whatever, if you don't feel you have that emotional connection yeah. and that I mean, safety. I feel like we knew so many kids from really rich families. Affluent, sure. Aff- sure. Affluent, so many people that ended up in the same drug circles that I was in came from Laurelhurst or Broadmoor, right? Like big money families. Could yep. not keep their kids. No. Like, it's not about money. No. It never has been. Like, that is Mm-mm. not the salve for drug addiction. Or anything. Or anything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and also, It's like, almost worse because if you have that inclination as a kid in that situation where you have access to a lot of money or credit cards or charge accounts or whatever, boom, you're off. Yeah. Easy yeah, breezy. I like I mean, so many, so many... Yeah. Well, if you don't have to hustle, if you don't have to fucking scrounge around and you can just have access to all of the money that you want. I mean, yeah, I mean, that was always my impression of all my friends that went to private schools when I was a kid and growing up is that they were the most fucked up of my friends. Actually, I mean, that's what I'm thinking. They were kind yeah. of the most fucked up. And maybe it's because of also because of the like the religious indoctrination along with the fucked up family and the money and the secrets yeah, well, and I think and denying the image, reality. Right. The yeah, image. Yeah. Like the, right. you're not you're not carrying your weight in the family story and the image. Right. right? It can be super damaging. There's all this like covertness and mm-hmm. yeah. Lots of Al Anon. My the 
woman that I was working with last summer doing the horse stuff, the trauma-informed equine therapy stuff. She and I are friends on social media, and she goes through different phases of posting about different types of trauma and different types of abuse and about narcissism and stuff. And lately she's been posting a lot about religious abuse and what women go through in religious situations. And she's I think she started posting that when that Duggar guy got sentenced and it was a conversation happening about his wife and about the all the women in that family and stuff. And it's been pretty interesting. I never really I mean it's always been, you know, somewhere in my awareness, but really like reading a lot of in-depth articles about that type of situation of just enduring I'm not talking about overt abuse Mm -hmm. you know I'm talking about the stuff that we're talking about and also you know a woman's place in the home and all of that stuff and just like how how that environment is really kind of a stomping ground for breeding narcissistic men yeah Mm -hmm. yeah well right I mean any I mean any patriarchy for sure yeah yeah, but it's been really interesting. I've been reading a lot of that stuff lately. And, you know, I've just learned since I feel like I, you know, was in a relationship with a narcissist. I feel like I've learned so much about narcissism. One? Only one? Uma. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pick. I mean, whatever. I don't know. Yeah, maybe all of them. I don't few. know. At yeah. least a few. I know. And I often... I mean, there's varying degrees of all kinds of behavior, and so probably, yeah, I mean, and I'm sure I have some of those characteristics, too, you know, and I'm willing to, but the trick in there is that if you're willing to admit that you might have them, you probably aren't one, because they can't have any self-awareness or ever admit any type of whatever, but I do. It just doesn't, they don't see it. Right, no, it's other people's fault. But a lot of it kind of aligns with alcoholism or behavior that we kind of assign to alcoholic behavior. So it's confusing. It's sometimes there's some gray areas. Yeah, yeah. You know, everything's. A, I mean, thinking. I feel like everything's yeah. a spectrum. Yeah. Hmm. I don't know how long we've been talking. It's probably been over an hour. I bet. Um, but I'm not gonna be here. I know we're weekend. going on a bit of a trip. I don't know if this episode is late that we it's one that we would have recorded last weekend and we didn't so we'll be i can do one let's see i'm leaving thursday and then i'll be back the following thursday so i mean we we could do one while you were gone yeah it's not not impossible we can see how it feels for sure yeah i can bring my earbuds with you i'm not going to bring the mic but i can bring this a headset with me and see how it sounds that'd be fun yeah and then we can check in on location yeah from Mexico, it'll be 85 degrees, sunny, blue sky, just perfect. I'll be, don't worry, I'll just be holding down the atmospheric river. (laughs) Yeah, don't Don't worry, worry. you'll be fine. (laughs) Don't worry. I can't wait, I can't can't wait to go and just, you know, I have concerns about traveling, I have concerns about the COVID and all that stuff, so I'm just going to be super extra mindful while traveling. super extra mindful. And And you're vaxxed and boosted and... Yeah, I've traveled during the pandemic, and I feel like I am have a pretty solid plan, and I have, like, I can get through the security line speedy. I have that clear thing where you can just not have to stand in the big line and stuff, so I'm just going to try to... Take the, um, 
Wash my the hands. Test. Take that COVID test, too. Yeah, I'll take it with me down there because I'm going to go stay with some... I'll be in one place and then I'm going to go stay with some friends. So I want to just make sure before I go stay with them that I am fine. So... It's a little, I feel a little bit kind of a little anxious, but I think just, um, I'll just walk through it and just take it, it's take it, it real, take it easy. Yeah, I think it's going to be great for just my, my mental health. I mean, I need, I need to see the sun occasionally. Just yeah, does, you have a much good. higher, you have a much higher need for sunlight than I do. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is. I just feel... The season gets to me, the dark and the rainy and the yuck, just, it really, it gets to me. I feel like it's gotten a little more acute the older I get. I don't feel like it used to, I didn't used to complain as incessantly as I do now. Or maybe I did. I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, you're like, well, no one can complain about it more than you do. So congratulations. I, don't, I, don't, I feel like I don't really hear it that much. Yeah, I feel like. The opportunity presented itself, and I was just like, yeah, of you know, course. yeah, I'm gonna do it. Give YOLO, me- YOLO, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, geez, I'm gonna be in April. I'm gonna be 55 years old, Janet. Unbelievable. The numbers, <laughs> they just keep adding up. It's getting wild. It keeps it's rolling upwards. I mean, now we have. Aldo to just be like, well, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not the oldest person. In the I'm the oldest person in this room right now. Mm-hmm. But that said, I mean, I do. I don't love the idea of aging. I don't love the idea of looking old and feeling old and all that stuff. Well, but you do. don't look old. You don't feel old. You make it Thank look you pretty good. Thank you so much. But I still. I wake up every day and I am so grateful for the the physicality that I do have. I am very grateful to be mobile and healthy and blah, 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 all that stuff. Like, I understand that piece. So I'm just trying to live in the gratitude instead of I'm looking into the future of like, oh, yeah. sh- when you see a super old person, and you're like, holy shit, my neck is going to fucking hang off me like that at yeah, some yeah. point. Like, There's oh my never, God. no good comes from looking into the future. <laughs> Nothing know. good is in there. Don't look. I know. It's bad. It's all bad. So all it is, is there's just suffering in the future and suffering the in the past. YOLO. Go on the trip, wear the bikini, eat the avocado, eat the guacamole, and freaking yeah, live it up. Take the trip. Take yeah. the trip. Yeah. All right. Well, episode twenty. Twenty. We did, we did it. it. We're doing yeah. it. It's a. It's a. It's a milestone. It's a. Yeah. It's a milestone. I feel I like we should have a, like a coin ceremony or something. <laughs> okay, I have a coin right here. <laughs> yeah, the we connecto. I saw a clip of two women that do a podcast that do it on video. They post the video. And, you know, Mason's always advocated for us to do a YouTube channel or, like, post the video piece of the podcast, which I don't I don't think anybody cares if they see us or not. But I did enjoy seeing these two women talking and talking with their hands. And, like, they're laughing. And they're obviously friends like we mm-hmm, are. And mm-hmm. it was kind of cute. But Yeah. Maybe someday. Maybe. Maybe that Maybe 2022. Yeah. yeah. I think we're going to probably evolve over time and do some exploration and some push the push yeah, the let's boundaries level, let's level up our tech 
Let's do it. For 2022. Level up our As tech. Ed calls it, tootie tootie too. Well, we're going to have a two, two, 22, and then we're going to have a two, 22, 22 mm-hmm. in February. So that'll be fun. A bunch mm-hmm. of twos. Yeah. If that's your thing. Twos aren't my thing, but. I like a two. Do you? I like three. I like ones I like three and better. Three better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ones and threes better, but I like a two. Yeah, twos are cute. But I, I feel like ones are like the alpha and threes are like the omega. Like those are yeah. the foundational. I agree. I, I mean, I went to design school, so everything was about odd. Odd's mm, always better. Right. Odd is right. always a better number. Maybe so, that's why I feel that way too. Yeah. It doesn't have to be perfectly symmetrical. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we what's talked a the, little bit about drugs. What's in the kitchen? What's in the kitchen? Um, I just <laughs> is, cut is up an apple. In there? No, I mean, there's bowl. There's a bowl. Oh, there's yeah. uh, some pretzels. Oh, I love those pretzels, those sourdough pretzels. Just a yeah, really those good apples. apple. The Cosmic Crisp. Mm-hmm. That's, that's my, what's up. That's the yeah. J- Janny favorite Cosmic Crisp. That's the. It's the season of Cosmic Crisp for mm-hmm. Janet, for mm-hmm. sure. One and a day. Again, one a day. The words. Are you eating a full apple every day? Yeah. It takes so me good. a whole day to eat one. Oh, you just huge. slice it up and then just keep chomping on it throughout the day? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. We could also juice some. We could do some yeah. celery apple juice and yeah. we could do all kind of shit. Yeah. I got a celery juice in there or a greens juice in there if you want any of those. Oh, nice. Probably a that ginger sounds- shot. Oh, that sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Sounds great. All, all right. right. Let's go I'll do see it. You in, see I'll you in the s- kitchen. I'll see you in there. All right. Bye. Bye.